Hi everyone, welcome to an, another episode of Black Women's Hour. Today I am interviewing Michael Muncia and Yahya Burt. Um, guys, do you want to introduce yourself? Do you want to start, Michael? Well, uh, hi, uh, thanks for inviting me to what uh, looks like is going to be a very interesting discussion. Um, Michael Muniz, I'm based in Cambridge um, uh, at the university here. Okay, brilliant. And Yahya? Uh, I'm a community historian uh, uh, and I work on the history of Islam and Muslims in Britain. Yeah. I'm based in uh, West Yorkshire. Uh, yeah, we're going to be speaking pretty much all things Islam today. Um, it, everyone knows I've written about the subject quite a few times. Uh, Muslims are pretty poorly treated, not just in this country, across the world. Um, but I always find it to be a very positive religion. I take quite a lot from it. Like every year I take part in Ramadan. I have loads of Muslim friends anyway. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I always said for me, like after I'd lost my daughter, I found Islam very helpful because to me, there's just lots in it that makes sense. So I would have friends and stuff. So I, they would just tell me certain things to read, certain passages to read and, you know, certain sayings and stuff and they were really really comforting to me um yeah but i have been long speaking about how muslims do have a hard time and yahya you uh converted to islam people like to say revert or convert which do you prefer <laughs> I, i'm not doctrinaire about the whole thing okay. uh you know but uh no it's been 1989 uh, was when i converted or reverted um yeah. So yeah, it's it's. I don't feel like a new Muslim. I feel like a slightly old, tap battered around the edges Muslim. Yes. <laughs> and so you said you have a video on YouTube that explains it that we can link to. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I, I met a wonderful, inspiring person, and that person was my doorway to Islam. Um, uh, his name was Falahadeen, and he was a wisecracking metallurgist. Um, scientist of metals who'd come to do a PhD in, in England and he was like my older brother it's a long story but I tell it much better in this video so I'm sure you'll link to it below yeah, uh, in, in, in the link definitely I mean how does it feel being for both of you like how does it feel being a, um, a Muslim in modern in modern Britain especially with the governments we've had actually the successive governments we've had because I mean, there's this quote unquote war on terror that they've got, and it has made Muslims very marginalized. And I think that it could be, for me, it's disturbing when I hear journalists and top level politicians, the way they speak about the Muslim community. Um, how does it feel to actually be, to be living through that as Muslims? Michael? Oh, well, this is really a, a, an important question. Um, it's been um, a very, very difficult time for uh, Muslim communities in the UK. Um, and they feel that they're being targeted, stigmatized and criminalized. You've got cases of children in schools being referred uh, to the government program for simply doing what we know children often do. Either it is because of spelling mistakes or they've drawn something that, you know, that raised the suspicion, suspicion of um, an Islamophobic teacher. 
uh, and often the problem is some of these programs are based on the assumption that uh, all teachers are, you know, are going to be <laughs> good teachers who are not going to abuse these programs and systems um, introduced to prevent um, extremism, we are told. Uh, but when Islam has been racialized the way it has, uh, then of course it is unavoidable that uh, communities will be specially targeted and um, criminalized in the way that Muslim communities have in this country. But I am sure Yahya will be able to even shed more light on that because he has probably been more involved in challenging some of these, um, you know, uh, problems. Yeah. Uh, programs than I have. Could you tell us about anything that you've experienced or, you know, when you are trying to challenge these stereotypes? Well, um, <clears throat> I, have, I haven't personally experienced any of the, any of the, the, the problems that uh, we often talk about when we're talking about how the program has criminalized communities. But I am aware of many individuals and uh, including even families who have uh, really been affected by this. And, um, and I know that uh, Yahya in particular has been working closely with some of the, uh, the groups uh, which try to support and assist these, uh, these, uh, these communities and, and families. So he is probably best positioned to give specific examples than I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you got any examples that you could give of what's happened? I mean, because we've all read the stories. I mean, you will see just the other day that a young Muslim boy said he wanted to give arms to the poor and he meant ALMS and he put ARMS and it just caused a big furore. And you can constantly hear about stories like a Muslim child drawing a spaceship and then they said he was trying to draw a rocket. I mean, my daughter's just gone into school last September and all, all on the nursery walls, it was like, we are, you know, we have prevent. And I was like, they're like two to five. Like, what are you talking about? You've got prevent here and, you know, so what have you got any examples of things you've had to challenge? Well, I mean, yeah, you've, you've, the, the key thing is that the policy, which was, has been, you know, a couple of, it's now in its second decade, um, the thing that really changed was originally it was community partnerships but you know about five years ago it changed to a public duty and now about five million plus public sector workers uh teachers lecturers nurses doctors or whatever they've been trained in prevent and you know a policy's bad and stigmatizing when it takes immense wisdom and good common sense to avoid you know stereotyping somebody yeah i mean we all know that there could occasionally be a problem but what we've got here is a kind of uh, institutionalized islamophobia and racism which means that these sorts of cases that you're mentioning are not mistakes they're the outcome of a bad policy and um and so that's why there is now you know a growing coalition um within in the muslim community and outside of it you know to challenge um this sort of structural state uh, Islamophobia, I would call it state Islamophobia, because it's sanctioned from the top down and, you know, in push through institutions. And the, the biggest problem is that it, it securitizes the relationship between the Muslim citizen and the state. Yeah. 
So in other words, somebody wants to get an education, somebody wants to, uh, is falls ill and wants to, you know, use a health service or whatever. Now that there's an extra penalty that if you happen to be Muslim, you know, you'll be scanned for extremist thoughts and behavior, uh, which, and that the burden of that policy is falling on children. Um, so that most referrals, a majority of referrals are falling on children. And, you know, this is extending outside of the Muslim community into uh, basically white working class communities. And it's the same problem um, that you could stereotype these communities um, and then refer them to prevent. When in fact, what they're needing are other kinds of interventions, um, which are being, uh, uh, being uh, squashed because of austerity. Right. So people need all kinds of interventions in, you know, to alleviate poverty and structural disadvantage and so on. But they're being pushed into this lens of security um, and inappropriately. So a lot of referrals to prevent then get referred back into these other services. But the thing yeah. is, people now realize that to get that referral to mental health or social services, they have to go through prevent to do it. So in other, in other words, you know, we're, we're seeing this problem of um, channeling um, to get state aid, legitimate state aid through this security policy. And that in of itself is also a problem. Yeah. Do you ever have, um, I mean, yeah, I know the problem that you're speaking about because we have Tasneen Kapunji on. Um, he's a great friend of the show. He's the family lawyer for Shamima Begum's family, which is mm. an absolutely outrageous case. Um, as far as I'm concerned. And one of the things that I, I heard about, which I, made me like really worry was like what you're saying about these referrals. So apparently they can refer like Muslim people to the mental health um, services and they tell the police. And while you're having your consultation, they can have a policeman in the room, which yeah. to me is just absolutely terrifying. And it's just, um, do you ever, <laughs> I mean, it must be very frustrating to see when it comes to someone like Shamima, Shamima Begum, the dehumanization and of her as a groomed, a young child that was actually groomed. And just the, I mean, honestly, I do think people have got alerts on Twitter for her name because you honestly just say it like you type it before you type the last M you have a thousand racists in your mentions calling her all kinds of names. Yeah. I know that you're both parents, not specifically to talk about, you know, your own particular. I mean, how do you, how do you talk to your children about that? I, I mean, I, I, my children, I mean, I, they've both faced Islamophobia at school. Mm. Um, we both have gotten them to avoid, um, talking about I mean, my, my daughter went to a both my, my children went to a kind of a, a nearly 100 percent white grammar school in in west yorkshire um which with in hindsight was you know wasn't the best thing for either of them particularly my daughter but um and we regret it now but, but the truth is is that you know the the curriculum was very much um in the schooling ethos was very much centered around white saviorhood of Muslims um, who were somewhere else, say not not in the town where we live, but they're in in Brad Bradford or mm -hmm. somewhere else, and they need saving. Um, or you know, it's it's a lot of a lot of it was about a lot of the art, religious studies and citizenship curriculum was sort of 
you know, soft messaging around fundamental British values and counterterrorism and so on. Um, you know, Islam is associated with violence in the religious studies curriculum and so on. So, so you know, it's, we, we told our daughter not to take religious studies at, at the school. Now she's moved to school in Bradford, <coughs> where the religious studies uh, curriculum is conclusive of Islam. We've allowed her to take religious studies at A-level, mm -hmm. but she didn't take it at, at GCSE. Um, and, and so, you know, the whole time we don't want our children to internalize a bad self-image, a bad image of themselves. We're trying to give them a sense of pride, a sense of honor, uh, um, uh, of loving their, their faith and their religion and the God and their prophet, right, and their community, and, and not to feel ashamed of who they are. Um, yeah. And... Um, you know, it's 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 sometimes an up, you know, it's an uphill battle because of the negative <clears throat> headlines and social media feeds and and everything. So, <clears throat> I mean, quite often, to be honest, part of it us is shutting a lot of that stuff off mm -hmm. and just getting on with our lives because, you know, with, with the with the newspapers and the social media, feed, there's so much negative stuff. That actually, it's sometimes healthier just to unplug a bit and not, especially for your children, not to just internalize all that stuff. And just explore their own the world in their own way through in their own pace and and not be led by this sort of agenda yeah. um, i think it's incredibly important and obviously as parents you want to provide those sort of healthy alternatives you don't want your kids to survive you want them to thrive yeah. and, and that stands for the whole community you want this community to have a dignified um uh, uh, uh presence in this country even to, to to you know as i said to to thrive and not just you know to make do uh, yeah. but but it's a lot of forces are pressing people to you know when they engage then they're doing entryism they're trying to subvert britain by entering into public life as faithful muslims but if they don't engage then they're isolationists and they live in ghettos so it's like damned if you do and damned if you don't so that creates a lot of cynicism amongst our young people yeah and and you you have to build resilience in people to to, to ignore all of that islamophobia yeah. so that you don't just get distracted from what you need to do to make your life work and to find your purpose and so that that is giving people courage and giving them hope that's that's a that's a unending process yeah. Um, and I don't need to tell you any of this. This is just racism no, in, thinking, in another in another guise, but it's the same uh, as dynamic. A, yeah, as a black person, of course I relate to it because I mean yeah. we've had we've had it for years, and then it's like, why have you got your own churches? Uh, you wouldn't let us in. Why have you got your own areas you live? Well, I just want seasoning for my food. You know what I mean? Like I moved out of London. <laughs> when I was moving. It was like I wanted to move to an area where I could get. Number one, food seasoning. Number two, my hair done. Apart from that, I'm, I'm good. I don't care about nightclubs or anything like that. But it has also been, you know, bringing up a black daughter here who is, there's, there are other kids of black heritage here. Um, there's, but they were kind of, it's getting better down here anyway. But I was all conscious, like a lot of the kids of black heritage here are mixed. So I was conscious of bringing a dark skinned girl here with the proper four seat, not no, you know what I mean, proper forcey afro and mm. I didn't want her so I'm always really really careful with her as to what she internalizes what she sees and I will constantly reiterate I will touch her skin tell her how beautiful it is and her hair mm. just the other day actually because in lockdown I just started wearing wigs and then 
we were walking down the street and we saw a white woman coming towards us. And I said, she said, you look like her. I went, how can I look like her? That's a white woman. What are you talking about? She goes, well, her hair's straight, like the stupid wig on your head. So I went and retwisted my hair. Oh. <laughs> I was avoiding the hairdresser. So yeah, it's like, so she does notice these things and she does kind of, you know, make comments. So I completely, that's why I've always said, obviously there's people like Michael that sit on the intersection of the black and Muslim community. But, you know, I just don't understand why people don't get it. They can't see, this is what happens to us. It's totally, you know, it's, it's, it's really quite disgraceful. But you, bringing up kids as Muslims now, I talk about them being the 9-11 generation because they've never heard anything else. And it is, like you said, you do try to shut certain things down, like I would with my daughter, but if she's looking on TV and she's looking in the papers and she's looking, you know, um, she doesn't read the papers yet, she's five, but if she's, you know, seeing cartoons and seeing adverts and all she's seeing is very, very light-skinned black women with the more straighter hair or that kind of thing, that, you know, it's easy for them to internalise and, and take information that you probably wouldn't want them to have. And so it's, you know, Michael, what would you say? How's it been for you? You do, are you pretty similar? Well, um, I, I think what I, I have to say may sound controversial to others, but I think black parents know this, uh, that uh, I think the many of our state schools are hostile environments for black children. Uh, we may not like to openly talk about that, but it's a fact. Uh, and I can imagine uh, they have become hostile environments for Muslim children as well. Um, uh, because um, my children have not been in that particular system precisely for that reason, they're black children. So I wanted to make sure that I don't have to deal with a lot of the stuff that I hear from other black families. So we decided that it would be best for them to, uh, to be schooled in a completely different uh, school system. Uh, and uh, we haven't had any uh, of the experience, any of the horror stories we hear, whether it is on the basis of, uh, of their faith, uh, of their hair, <laughs> or, of their, or, or their religion. In fact, they are encouraged to write uh, essays. I mean, uh, when I look at some of the essays they've written in religion, I often think that if this was a different uh, school system, they probably would have had problems. And yet the feedback from the teachers is always positive. They encourage to be critical of, uh, you know, everything they look at, they see around them. And they often encourage to, uh, to examine situations from two different perspectives, or even more perspectives. Mm -hmm. uh, a, a good example was uh, when they, one of them was given an essay on the, uh, the niqab, the first veil, the policies in France. Uh, they were encouraged by their teachers to write about uh, an argument for the first veil and against the first veil. Mm. So this is what you want in a school environment where children are encouraged to think. In fact, the, the school environment should be a safe space for children to be naughty, for children to say ridiculous things, and for children to write rockets, even to say they want to send real weapons. <laughs> to people and then be challenged by their teachers and encouraged to think uh, in different ways. Um, if you can do that in a school environment uh, as children, where else are you going to do that? They got on the internet. If they can't find a safe space in the school where they can do that, then they go to the internet where there are 
vulnerable to dangerous um, elements and groups who can easily manipulate and take advantage of their strong uh, views and political views, because uh, whether we like to admit it or not, children being brought up in this country, regardless of their race and religion, are growing up being conscious uh, of a number of issues, whether it is the environment, uh, whether it is race, whether it is gender, sexualities, they are being, and that's a good thing, and we should encourage that, uh, because uh, these are future leaders, and we want to know that our future leaders are concerned about this world and concerned about uh, humanity as a whole, but trying to shut that, that down by imposing uh, regulations on schools and teachers, then we are really stifling the kind of uh, debate you want your children to have. And, yes. and, and, they, and there has been, um, I mean, because Britain is a socially, is a, a practice what we call social apartheid. So yes. the implementation of some of these programs really differs. I mean, we see a difference in terms of uh, the type of schools, um, you know, where these uh, programs are imposed and then where they may not be imposed. I'll give one example. When the whole prevent uh, thing came about, uh, talking about uh, uh, universities being asked to monitor their speakers. This wasn't applied to our own Cambridge Union here or the Oxford Union, but it was applied to all other universities. Yeah. Um, and um, also in terms of uh, schools, we know that some schools don't even take this prevent seriously. They, they think it's a waste of time. And they are not under the spotlight. They can encourage their children to, uh, to, to invite speakers to come. They can study what are, would be considered in other schools as kind of controversial topics, but they encourage to engage with those kind of topics. So I haven't personally experienced any of these, um, these kind of uh, problems. And I think precisely because uh, I was conscious right from the beginning that um, I had to do whatever I could to make sure that I don't have to deal with this, especially when you're dealing with, uh, when you're raising black children, there's yeah. already enough drama you have to deal with. Yeah. Um, you know, and you don't want more stuff on, on your head. So we decided yeah. it would be best to keep them away from all this kind of drama. I totally agree. I had to do the same for my son. I mean, it was like we had a, a teacher who basically, my son's, you know, I'm five foot 11. My son's huge. He's a rugby mm. player. Mm. Um, we had a teacher that was squaring up trying to fight him. Mm. And I had to like, you know, when he was at state school, I had to, I had to be up there every single week. Mm. Well, he didn't do this. He did, he's not aggressive. He's spoiled, mm. to be honest, but he's not aggressive. He's just a bit moody today. Mm. Or it mm. was just constant, constant work. And then we found when we put him in to private school that there was a complete and utter difference, you mm. know. And I didn't want him in private school because I went and I had a hard time. But then that was back in the 80s and 90s. Mm. So mm. it was different for a black child being in that kind of school mm. back then. Mm. And that's why I was kind of resistant to it. But it turned out to be the best, absolutely best thing. I know it is controversial for people, but I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just not going to have my child. Well, I mean, uh, parents, uh, yeah, I, I understand. I think parents should not sacrifice the futures of their children at the altar of ideology. Yeah. So you have to put your children first and what is best for them. Uh, it is just unfortunate we live in this kind of uh, system and environment, but our responsibility is towards our children. Uh, yeah. And uh, black parents in particular, uh, they, they have, don't have the privilege of being, uh, of, you know, of participating in ideological wars 
the expense of their children's safety uh, because eventually uh, the our so-called comrades won't understand what our children are going through and won't even sympathize so um you know and uh, the the stories you hear from all black parents are very similar especially when it comes to boys uh the school reports start changing at a certain age you start getting these aggressive uh, almost as if they've been written by the same person i mean you can compare uh, the school reports of all black parents who are raising sons in particular and you see similarities in the language about 10 11 and, yeah exactly so so you understand something is going on and and then uh, it becomes important for you to do whatever is in your power and whatever you can to protect your children because if the state can't protect them then you know you have to do whatever you can yeah i mean i, mean, I know I was, exactly what you're saying oh sorry go on Yaka. i was just gonna just reflect back on uh you know from my daughter in particular, you know, the, the, the kind of positive thing I think in the, during lockdown has been, you know, how Muslim young people have been inspired by the Black Lives Matter movement mm -hmm. um, directly. Uh, and, and there was a lot of parallels between the mobilization last summer and then the recent mobilization over Palestine. It all takes place on social media. Um, and what, you know, and both mobilizations by young people were treated with suspicion, weren't they? um and and just reflecting on the last one on palestine you know the you know sort of 99 percent muslim secondary sixth form that my, my daughter goes to now in bradford you know the girls were just making palestine flags and wearing them or or, or sticking them up around the school and the, and the teachers were going around taking them off mm. uh, everywhere around the school yeah. and unfortunately instead of opening up a dialogue with parents the school, without consultation with parents, brought or you know brought in a sort of soft Zionist group, you know solution not sides, uh, which just talk, talks blandly about both sides um, being kind of in an equal conflict or whatever, um, and centering the you know centering the um, feelings of Israelis, um, and and you know I you know that there was no chance to open up to genuine discussions. The sort of things that Michael's talking about that. You allow young people to gain a critical edge um, and to think through complicated moral issues instead of that you're clamping down their natural feelings towards justice and injustice and you're stigmatizing it in the school and the school is a safe space uh, uh, for conformity and a safe space for lack of critical thinking and a safe space if you like for silencing yeah. and it's the opposite of what a school should be yeah. and you know i completely hear what you're saying that a parent must respect choices of parents to um, do the best by their children with the resources have available to them. But as a whole society, we do need to solve mm. the problem of the state school sector where the vast majority of children go and the vast majority of parents don't have a choice but mm. to send their kids to these schools. So, you know, with all the problems that are there of racism, Islamophobia and sexism and so on, we, we need to address them. We need to yeah. we still need to address them. Yes. Um, oh, I definitely agree. I mean, um, you, like we say, we do our best on an individual basis, but it's definitely a societal problem. And I, I was speaking to Janet Alder just yesterday, whose brother Christopher died. Um, it well, died. He was murdered by the police. Mm. They were dancing around and making monkey noises. And then I had um, Sabi from Stand Up to Racism group, and I was saying to her, you know, we are trying to do things on an individual basis, but we have a hostile government. We have a, a psych, psychopath for a home secretary. 
and I'm just don't know, you know, I was asking, what do we do? What do we do in the face of that? Because part of stand up to racism thing that they do is they organize demonstrations. The right to demonstrate now has been taken away. But I, I think there's just going to be a lot of, there's, there's, there's going to have to be some kind of uh, battle. I'm choosing my words because I've got prevent will come and get me. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you know of ideas and, and words, yeah. and there's going to have to be some kind of action because this is not sustainable. Mm. And going back to what you said about lockdown, I think this is what, what I noticed, I observed happening. I mean, black people have always been sympathetic to the Palestinian cause anyway. Um, I think that, you know, so that came out of America. A lot of black people convert to Islam in America. And so they're aware, and Malcolm X spoke about Palestine a lot. Um, so people got it from there. And I think what happens with our younger kids now is in lockdown, as we were talking about the Black Lives Matter yesterday, people saw it. And it was like so many things collided at once. And people really saw with the George Floyd video, which I don't watch things like that because it's I would cry so badly. But I've heard about it. And I heard people say it was like nine minutes long. And it's like the world stopped still. And they saw, and that's why people got up and went to the streets. And I think... The same things happen with Palestine. Um, people are seeing things more. People have their phones. People are recording things. They're saying, well, hold on a second. How long is this going to go on for? So it has sort of got kids up and wanting to say stuff. And I think, yeah, we do have to definitely um, address it in the schools. And we have to protect them, don't they? Because they've shown guts. Our, young, our kids have stood up, right? We've got to have their backs. Yeah, 100%. basically 100 percent we have to we have to take a, a hit for them if we have to yeah. but we have to do what we can to protect that bravery and moral courage yeah, and I, I absolutely backs. agree and also on the issue of uh, i think the video of george floyd i didn't watch it either for the same reason i hardly watch those films yeah. we're dealing with so many just a lot of trauma we don't want to know yeah. of that but i think the violence itself that people witness is, is very similar it's it's not different from the other forms of violence that um, our children have been subjected to through uh, institutions and systems, mm. um, whether it is uh, prevent. Prevent is a form of violence. It is, may not be physical violence, but it is causing a lot of the same level of trauma and suffering for a lot of um, um, Muslim children and their families, and also non-Muslims, because it's affecting a lot of people. Uh, so the, I think we have to do away with all forms of violence, whether it is the kind of violence we saw uh, George Floyd being subjected to, or the kind of violence we see uh, Palestinians being subjected to, or the kind of violence we, uh, we may not even see, the forms of silent forms of violence that uh, are being uh, disseminated to a lot of children uh, in schools, uh, through various government programs. And I think those programs and systems um, of violence have to be challenged and have to be removed. And um, a, a conversation has to be had on that. Because um, what tends to happen is that we, because we can't see it in a video, uh, it doesn't mean it didn't happen uh, or it's not happening. You know, there are so many families dealing with all kinds of, you know, trauma, you know, as a result of their relationship with their school uh, in, in, within the context of uh, programs like PREVENT, for example. So those issues have to be addressed. 
Yeah. I mean, I feel very let down by the p party political system at the moment, personally. And um, so I, I, I hear your call that people have to join hands. And I think that that has to come from society. And we have to join our causes together and have a, a, a deeper understanding of what links all these, what's causing all these forms of violence, racial violence and, and other forms of violence that Michael's talking about. We need to have an analysis that links all these things together so we yeah. can build a coalition yeah. based on a sh shared analysis and understanding because at the moment that a lot of people get drawn when they're sort of disenchanted with the party political system they get drawn into into issues and causes and they're mobilized around the cause but that's not the same thing as a movement mm -hmm. a mass movement to change society we'll all be tackling different bits of the problem mm -hmm. without sort of having an overarching vision so we have to find a way to have a dialogue to that to start that conversation so so conversations like this are small building blocks uh, in in that process right of of yeah. coming to a shared understanding of what the prob problems are um i think we can see what the problems are but maybe we need to still link it all up a bit better um yeah than we have been I, doing i agree I, I tried to i remember years ago i did a demonstration um when trayvon martin was killed but it was also to try and draw parallels with what happens in England with the criminalization of young black people, black boys in particular. And I remember I had um, a group of, I called the Muslim Council of Britain, they said, great, we'll send some people down. And I was standing and um, this other black guy who remained nameless. So this group of Muslim kids came through and they were obviously Muslim, they were wearing the, the clothes and stuff and the, they had hijabis and stuff. And this guy was like, what are they doing here? And I went, what do you mean? Well, I said, I invited them here. He goes, what for? I said, mate, we're trying to do a demonstration about stop and search. If anyone can understand stop and search, it's them. Yeah. So I think, you know what I mean? He's like, oh yeah. yeah, they don't like black people. I said, look, mate, please, at this moment. And then I think, look, we're nine times likely to be stopped and searched in comparison to a white person. They're seven times likely. They get it. You know, so we, we're starting to do things like that. I think it's really important, especially with the police and crime bill. I think you're right, everyone's going for their own individual thing. But if you look at that, that affects practically everybody. I mean, it affects like women in terms of sexual assault and rape, um, who are the main victims of that. It affects the GRT community. I mean, I've seen some videos coming, like I didn't even realize just how badly they were treated. And I saw the police storming a GRT community, guns on them and stuff. I was like, whoa. They could be black guys in South London. They've got guns on them. They're shouting, yelling, no respect for the children running around, dehumanizing them and stuff. Yeah. So definitely, um, yeah, I agree in, in pulling the causes together. Um, what I, I was going to question. Ask... Uh, I was going to ask, sorry, I was going okay. to ask a question. Um, um, you know, in light of all the, what we're discussing, all these themes, and I wanted to know from Yahya uh, whether when they were researching uh, for that particular for that book they recently published whether they noticed parallels between uh, the experiences of uh, white victorian muslims and the experiences of um, uh, of muslims today who come from diverse racial and you know groups and nationalities uh, where they because uh, i understand that they are uh, they were practicing their islam at the height of the british empire um, uh, colonialism. So did they experience any of these kind of similar challenges or, or 
or yeah. if not the same challenges, but what kind of challenges were they experiencing uh, at so, that time? Thank you for that question, Michael. So just to say, I've just brought this book out um, uh, with two co-authors, Rialda McNamara and Manira McDesolo, and um, it's a translation of um, a travelogue by an Ottoman Turkish intellectual called Yusuf Sami Asmai, uh, written, he comes to England in 1895 and he spends a month with Britain's first ever mosque community, which was based in Liverpool. Um, and as you say, 1895, you know, it's the height of the uh, British Empire. Uh, Liverpool was the second great imperial port in Britain uh, after London. And so, it, you know, people came from all over the empire and they landed in Liverpool first rather than in London uh, and travelled down to London by train or visited Manchester, you know, the workshop of the world at the time. Um, so it was a cosmopolitan space. Um, a, a great port city and and England's first mosque was there uh, at the t in its early years it was known as the Church of Islam uh, which indicates that it was a sort of a hybrid institution a kind of cross between Protestant Christianity and Sunni uh, Islam but yes they did face uh, they, 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 first they rented premises uh, when they established the community in 1887 uh, it was a micro community, very small, but the, the, the landlord kicked them out after a few years saying he didn't want some anti-Christian religion on the premises. So they, they, they moved to premises on a main road into the city, the West Derby Road, uh, and it became much more visible. They decided to call the Avan aloud from the first floor, and this attracted a lot of interest, but also a lot of, unfortunately, violence and um a bit of persecution, people would come in, they would break up uh, worship, they would break up meetings, they would throw things at the protesters, they would throw things at the Mu'azzin, um, they would put... Uh, so the the, the, the person, person who calls the prayer, calls people to the prayer, mm. uh, they would, they would, which they did in Arabic and English, by the way, they did a, a double, um, a du which is unusual, it's not done today, but it was done in this community. And, and they, they, they experienced all of these things. So although they were, the core of that community was were white converts, mostly working class converts, okay? Men and women, some elderly, some young, um, some middle-class people, mostly sort of working class. Um, you know, they, 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 they were sort of otherized, uh, if you like, um, despite being white. Um, uh, news of this community spread. It got a lot of press attention around the Muslim world, uh, particularly after the community's leader opposed um, a kind of disrespectful play uh, written about the Prophet in 1890. This gained the attention. Sorry? I'm saying th this has been going on for some time. You yeah, know, it's been going on for some time. So it's, it's, not, it's not new, but it was novel at that time um, because this was the first mosque. You know, people weren't even used to seeing a mosque. I mean, I think it's different now. I think people have grown up with mosques. There's a generation of grown up with mosques and, and know what mosque, generally speaking, a, a mosque is not a new thing in the British landscape, but whether or not, of course, it's a say, you know, it, it's a respected place, you know, or a safe space um, in terms of how outsiders look at it. I mean, obviously, you know, that's up for question, isn't it? But um, I, was, I was saying, I was referring to the issue of protests against plays. It seems that 
there have always been plays targeting Prophet Muhammad even during that period, and you also have always had people protesting against that. Yeah. We, we still have, I think, similar things going on with the cartoons and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, no, the, the, in fact, there was another protest in the 1930s as well, which has got, uh, been missed out of the history books. So it's been going on for, 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 for quite a while. Um, so I, I, the reason why it's important, I think, for, um, for, for British Muslims to sort of gain a sense of identity, to know that, you know, their history is deeper than many of them realize. Um, because most British Muslims are brought up with the idea that their parents, that, that Islam started in this country in, say, the 1960s or whenever their parents first came over, but there's like a longer history there. And, and this is the first, these not, these not the first Muslims in Britain, but they're yeah. certainly, it's certainly the first mosque community that we know of. I mean, there would have been maybe some private mosques in embassies and things like that in country homes. Some of the Anglo-Indian families had, you know, built mansions back in England and brought servants back. And sometimes they provided like a private prayer space for them. So there were private mosques, but there weren't community run public mosques. And this is the first one that we know about. Um, so, the, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, I think you made, you made an important point that the, this was not the first uh, community, but the first mosque. Hmm. Because I think uh, some historians have traced the history of the presence of Islam in Britain to the Tudor period and even before that. Yeah. Uh, those yeah. who came from Africa, um, the, the black Muslims who came and then some of them settled and some of them went back. Um, so the in terms of communities, they would have been communities but not organized. Rather those yeah. would have been maybe families or even communities but without a, a functioning mosque. That's yeah, that's why I use the term mosque community, because you're right. I mean, even the uh, Tudor records record one Muslim birth in 1601 mm -hmm. in England. So obviously, you know, that, you know, uh, Muslim corsairs, they, they, contr they, they controlled the island of Lundy in the Bristol mm -hmm. Channel in the 16th century for five years. Uh, the, what they were known as the Barbary corsairs or the pirates. They were, in fact, you know, quite often Muslim converts who'd converted to Islam and still, and, and then were deployed against the English fleet um, and harried the English fleet. Um, and they followed uh, one of the Islamic schools of law, the Maliki school. Um, but there's a, they controlled this island in the Bristol Channel for five years. So there's lots of strange and weird and wonderful, you know, stories that, that can be uncovered uh, from an earlier period. But what's the reason why I work on, on the late 19th century is because it's the first time we start to see organized community life and that itself is very resonant now when Muslims, as we've been talking earlier, Muslims are trying to, are organizing their, not just community life, but wanting to make a contribution and having those frustrations of being accepted or rejected or judged. And it's quite instructive to reflect back on an earlier period and think about those issues today. You know, reflect on history to reflect on your own time. Yeah, um, I think that's really important. And I'm hearing things that I didn't know before as well. And I think, all I'm thinking at the front of my mind is I'm hearing you talking about them being discriminated against and stuff is, oh my gosh, in 2021, Nas Shah had to stand up in Parliament and speak about saying, if you guys don't like your statues being torn down, how do you think we feel seeing you trying to make cartoons of Mohammed? Mm -hmm. um, but you spoke about converting, and this was something I really wanted to get to as well. I was about to ask you, because um, there was a question that you had asked. Um, and it's something I'm interested in. And when I brought it up online the other day, people were really interested as well. And um, 
you'd ask the question, how much can conversion to Islam be a process of gradual adaptation rather than an instant adoption of the expectations of born Muslims? And you spoke about Quilliam and his community faced similar questions about their adoption of an Anglo-Islamic synthesis with Protestant liturgical forms. Um, just to sort of put it down to more layman terms, like I've thought about converting to Islam before. And me personally, I always thought it was, um, I, I guess because I just happen to be around the right kind of Muslims and stuff. And so like my Ramadan <laughs> support group, there's just such nice people. And I remember saying something to Tazneem when he was on here, and he said something about, I can't remember what we were saying, I said, but you wouldn't do that, like, because you're a Muslim person, so you guys seem to just behave really well and have high standards. He was like, I don't know about that. So I was kind of wondering, do you feel, as um, a convert, did you feel, do you feel more pressure to represent Islam in a certain kind of way? Uh... I, I've um, I, I used to people used to say that to you and you used to kind of put that expectation on yourself but as I've gotten older I don't believe any of that I mean I I, I don't believe God guides anybody uh, by your hand in that sense it's it's God's decision um, you just have to live the best life you can um, and if people are interested they're going to ask that's the way I look at it you don't and it, there's no like proselytization in Islam or missionizing in that sense. If people are interested, you can invite them in, but that's it. You, you know, there's no, God isn't interested in compulsion or conformity or anything. God, God wants a genuine love from a person's yeah. heart. And that's the way I've always looked at it. There's no point forcing anything on anybody because forced, there's no such thing as forced love as far as I'm concerned. Um, love is free or it's nothing. And I think you're right that, um, you know, yeah, definitely that there was a period where um, Islam, conversion to Islam amongst white people in Britain was part of the kind of hippie trippy 1960s kind of all this love kind of counterculture, peace and love man kind of stuff. Uh, and, and a lot of them were quite anti-political and um but that, you know, I, for me, you know, there's another whole, another story like the Malcolm X story that Islam is always political and is always anti-racist and always anti-imperialist. And, and Malcolm X is a much more consequential figure for British Muslims growing up now than any of these white hippie converts from the 60s, I yeah. can tell you. So it depends. I think, you know, you encounter one flavor of Islam, but there are many flavors and, you know, if you want a kind of radical, you know, politicized form of, of Islam, it's out there, if you want that, that's yeah. anti-racist and it's not particularly, I mean, Sheikh Michael here is a scholar of Islam, he's been very, very, uh, I have to call him Sheikh really, give him his due, because he studied Islam formally and properly, he's not just an academic at Cambridge, he's Sheikh Michael, but Sheikh Michael always corrected me and saying, you know, sometimes, you know, the Prophet's companions would use very strong language when they were criticizing injustice and they didn't hold back. Um, so I know that there's a kind of P's and Q's and Muslims don't tend to swear and all of that and tend to be very polite. But generally speaking, if, if it calls for it, you, you know, you, you call it out in the strongest oh, yeah, possible language. That's what I'm saying. You know, it's, it's there. It's part of, part of the tradition, even if Muslims today don't live up to that always. Um, 
you know I it's not just I'm... about being nice and having cups of tea with EGL members and all of that no I know I asked that question because I thought about um you know I think a better way of phrasing it is like I kind of saw a high standard behavior and I know that Muslims can use bad language and stuff like that but what I was more thinking of and there's something that you just said to me which actually made a lot of sense because I was thinking of it from people's point of view you just brought God into it that like like that is who you should be thinking of but what I was trying to say was I was trying to think of because Muslims have such a bad time in the press and politics and stuff like that I kind of felt that if you're going to convert you have to really be on your best behavior because to me it's kind of like if you go into someone's party in their house and you start vomiting everywhere and throwing drinks like you can't go into someone's thing and disgrace <laughs> disgracefully am I making sense oh well you know I, I to be honest um uh, I, I think yeah, that judgmentalism can be there for converts. So in other words, you know, if you're born Muslim, if you behave badly, you're still a Muslim. Whereas if you're a convert and you sort of go off the rails, it's like, oh, they've left Islam. And, you know, that there is that. Um, but I always say to them, well, look, I, I, I've been around long enough. I just get to be as bad as you are um, <laughs> on occasion. But, you know, I, look, you know, they're all kind of, there, there are 1.7 billion Muslims in, world, in the world. And believe me, they come in all shapes and sizes. Yeah. All of humanity is there in all of its forms. So, um, you I know, there I'm, isn't one kind of Muslim is what I'm saying to yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, I get it better now um, from having that discussion. So what I was trying to say is like, so for anyone who's watching who's interested in converting to Islam, what I'm saying is you don't have to be perfect to go in, is what I'm, you know. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's a gradual thing. And, and right. nobody should tell you that you have to become some kind of perfect Muslim. I mean, a lot of people might do, but you have to ignore them. You have to just take it one step at a time exactly. and, do, do, and do what feels right for you and what you can manage in your life. And yeah. uh, Sheikh Michael knows better than me, but Islam itself, when it first came, it came gradually. It was revealed over a period of 23 years. And many things that were eventually got... Uh, prohibited weren't prohibited uh, for many many years and people prayed and drank wine and stuff like that so so you know it, it wasn't that all it didn't all come at once is what i'm saying to you so we should take that gradual approach because you don't want to turn your life upside down yeah, I think and, and be cut off from your own people and your own you know your own social circle and family it's got to be a gradual process yeah. uh, and it doesn't mean you have to you know divorce yourself from your your earlier life it just means you have to make adjustments slow adjustments over time uh, that's the way i would look at it i would encourage people to sort of think of it that way um some people want to go all in straight away i tried to discourage them and say you don't want to you don't want to kind of set yourself up for an early fall if you take too much on slow and steady is what i say to people this is um just to add uh what uh, yeah, I'm not a convert myself. Uh, as I often say, my relationship with the faith is like an arranged marriage. When you're born into it, it's, it's almost <laughs> like an arranged marriage. But the the point you've made is extremely important, and that is that uh, the, the rules, even the rules in Islam, they are always based on the weakest member of the community, or the lowest common denominator, as I put it. There isn't any rule that is based on the most pious or the strongest. Everything is always targeted at the weakest person. Those who can do more, whatever they are, they are able to do is classified as optional. 
whatever is classified as compulsory is always based on the lowest or the weakest member of the community. And everything is based on gradual, you know, whatever a person is able to do. And there's an emphasis on, on the fact that um, Islam is meant to be easy. You find that emphasis in the Quran and in the teachings of Muhammad that you always emphasize that you have to make things easier for people. And when it becomes difficult, then it is not part of Islam. He clearly said that. When it becomes extremely difficult for a lot of people, it may become difficult for an individual uh, because of their circumstances, but then for that particular individual, there are always um, licenses for them to practice whatever they can. So, uh, but you do find people who have a lot of expectations that once you have come into Islam, you have suddenly, you suddenly have to give up, uh, you know, this or give up that, or, you know, and some go to very extremes, uh, which, you know, lead to many, many uh, social, mental, and even physical problems. But I also want to uh, touch on a, a point that was uh, alluded to by Yahya, and that is that um, there are many communities of Muslims. And one particular community in the UK in particular that has often been uh, ignored are the Caribbean Muslims. And their story of or their entry into Islam is different from that of others. And they often were attracted to what they saw as the, um, rather they saw Islam as a theology of protest against oppression and a theology of social justice through the teachings of Malcolm X and other groups. And that's what brought them to Islam. Often there's an expectation by other Muslims, non-Black Muslims, that once the, these particular Muslims have converted or reverted to Islam, they should somehow give up their Caribbean heritage. So the good news is that there have been communities of Caribbean Muslims, organized communities, which have developed, who are beginning to realize that converting to Islam doesn't mean you have to give up your Caribbean heritage, because the early community of Muslims around the prophet was made up of people from diverse cultures. You had Africans, you had Persians. They were all encouraged to keep their African heritage or their Persian heritage. You had Arabs too, and even among Arabs, you had different uh, groups, and they were encouraged to keep those positive as aspects of their culture and their heritage. And, and that's, uh, I think that's where the rather what is often referred to as the universality of Islam is. If Islam was expecting everybody to fit within a particular level, it wouldn't be that universal. The reason why it is considered a universal faith is because you can be a Muslim wherever you are in your own cultural and social context and respecting your identity. And, and that's why I was interested uh, when I was asking Yahya about the early Muslims uh, and the fact that they were trying also uh, the early uh, British, rather not early, let's call them Victorian Muslims, but there were other earlier communities before them. They were also trying to preserve, uh, to find um, a kind of synthesis between their white working class um, culture and the new faith and interpreting Islam within that context. And that too is Islam, it's legitimate Islamic practice. Uh, and the kind of Islam practiced by African Caribbean, including those from uh, who were previously from Rasta families, there are a lot of them in the UK. That too is legitimate Islamic practice. The, uh, it's, not, it's not just what you get from South Asian communities or Arab communities. Uh, you know, all those forms of Islam are legitimate Islamic practices. It is exactly as it was in the time of the Prophet. What makes a 
personal Muslim are the core beliefs and core practices, and those do not change. Those remain the same, and uh, you know they can be practiced by anyone wherever they are. When it comes to social and other cultural issues, you know people can bring whatever they have to bring in within the parameters drawn by the Quran, of course. Yeah. So when we're talking about the book, does it speak merely about the historical period, or do you bring it right up to modern day, or do you draw comparisons? What will people find in the book? I I I much prefer to treat my readers as smart and, and they're, they're going to make their own parallels but what I try to do is 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 for me it's like being a time traveler you can I want people to feel like they've they've traveled in time they've gone back and they've lived in another person's shoes and and the thing that's so nice about it is that it's it, it's not an academic book um it's um it, it's it's a translation of a travelogue by a journalist from Cairo just just telling his story and he's got a lot of wit it's quite sarcastic. I mean, it's a good, it's a fun read, and it's surprising because he's very critical of these converts as well. There's a big argument going on um, about all these things about wh where you put culture and where you put religion and when people convert. So it's very lively, and 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 you feel like your time. Tra that's why I want is people to feel like they're time traveling, and then they can just reflect themselves back on uh, if we, if it's relevant to them or not. Even if it's not that relevant to them, they'll enjoy it because. Yeah. I think it's a rollicking good story because quite often the gaze is the white gaze, the white imperial gaze, um, looking at and judging the rest of the world. I like these travelogues where it's people, people of color, I guess, uh, talking to each other about their own issues without, I mean, the, the white gaze is still sort of there, but nonetheless, it's, it's sort of in the more in the background and you have people talking about their own issues. That, that, that's a relief to me to be able to highlight conversations like this and to bring out alternative histories and stories you know because this has been sitting in the library for over 100 years and nobody knew about it not even Turkish scholars had had studied this text so when somebody pointed out to us a couple of years ago and we started translating it we thought wow this is amazing we have to publish it so we just want to make these alternative histories open to people yeah the things you don't learn in school right and you're not going to yeah. learn in school um, is that mosque that you speak about in Liverpool still there? Yeah, it reopened in 2014. Okay. It was for years, it was a registry office, you know, it closed as a mosque in 1908 and then it was a registry office, people got married there, then it was a records office. Uh, it was still known as the mosque, even when people used to go get their registry marriage witness there, it was still known as the mosque, but nobody kind of quite knew why. And then it was reopened in 2014 by a local community there. And now they're doing some of the similar things like they're feeding the homeless and they've got connections with the local football clubs and, you know, they're doing some good work there. So it's, you know, it's, I guess, history repeating itself. Yeah. Um, so if anyone was sort of interested in converting to Islam, I mean, what, I know to convert to Judaism takes two years. Do you just want to say it, with Islam, is it just, you decide you say Shahada and that's, you're Muslim, is it? I'll, I'll let Sheikh Michael take take the baton on yeah, this question. You also should say something. Else. But <laughs> there isn't really a kind of what you might call a, a, a ceremony or a ritual. The most important thing for anybody is to first learn about the faith, uh, learn whatever the the most basic thing of what they're getting into, uh, and um, the that's the first and most important thing to know about what really constitute Islam or faith in Islam? What are the core beliefs uh, of 
Muslims, and they're very simple and easy. And once you accept that, that really is what makes a person Muslim. A person is already a Muslim. Then there is the, what you might call, the public you know, declaration of faith in, in the presence of others. But there are a lot of people who are walking around who are already Muslims. Uh, they may not have done this public, uh, what you call, formal declaration of faith, the Shahada, if, if you're referring to, <clears throat> but they're already Muslims, you know, because they believe uh, in what they've read about Islam, they believe in what Islam teaches about the core beliefs and core values. They already accept that. They just simply may want to declare it. And some people may want to declare it openly. There is no expectation that it has to be publicized. Some people may simply, uh, you know, declare to their closest friends or to people they trust. So that those people are Muslims, even if they, they may not have publicized it in any way. And there are so many of them. I, 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 in a Cambridge academic coined a term, referred to them as submarine Muslims. So <laughs> there are so many of them in this country, people uh, often due to their position in society, or they just don't want to deal with a lot of drama from you know, Islamophobes and so forth. So because and I think that's perf perfectly understandable as yes. well, that they don't want right. the hassle. The of, hassle because it's a yeah. personal relationship between you and, and your yeah. creator. Uh, it's not you know, for everyone to know that he, a person has converted yeah. to Islam. So people uh, go through uh, them. And then there is the actual formal part of declaring the faith in, in front of maybe two or a few witnesses. The reason for that is simply so that people know that you're a member of the community in case something happens to you, uh, you know, to know that, well, say someone dies uh, and the person may want to be buried according to Muslim rights, or maybe they may need uh, whatever they need, the support of their community, only for the people to know that this is a member of the community. That's why they may declare it in front of a few people in their, wherever they live, so that those people know. But it's not an expectation that someone should go in a mosque and do that. But it is a, a requirement that the person should do the, what is called the shahada, the declaration of faith. Maybe Yahya can ex uh, explain more on that as well. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just recount my own story, which is uh, just the, the details of the Shahada. So I was I was sort of said I was interested in Islam. My friend went into overdrive and was inviting lots of people around to talk to me about Islam. And then, you know, I kind of said I was ready. And then they took me to a big mosque about an hour's drive away. Um, this is in West Yorkshire. And I, I, I said a Shahada in front of it with an imam and, and so on. And they gave me some books and. Before that, I took a ritual bath. Before I went to the mosque, I took a ritual bath, which is where you kind of, there's a kind of ritual purification where you wash your whole body and so on, and, and, and before you go and take your shahada. So um, that that's that's what I did. And then after that, I, you know, I was accepted, and it's very straightforward. Um, and it was a very moving experience as well. I still remember it very vividly. But, um, you know, it's usually something like that. Well, it could happen in somebody's home, as Michael says, it doesn't have to be in a mosque with an imam. Although people, nowadays people tend to sort of formalize it in that way. It seems to be a sort of a, uh, becoming a thing, but yeah. um, but it doesn't have to be. And as Michael says very importantly, it doesn't have to be a great big public declaration, particularly, you know, you don't want to come take your shard and say, let me, let me, let me wage war and prevent on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, let, let me become the champion of all Muslim causes. I mean, it shouldn't be like that either. 
because at the at the heart it should be about your personal relationship with God and not really about a public political persona where you're you're out of solidarity you're supporting the oppressed Muslims you know that's a bit that's a mixing in different motives maybe into something that's really about God uh, at the end of the day. Well, I hope it's helped. Yeah, anybody who's watching because that was actually the God part was the bit I forgot. Um, when I was, <laughs> I was, it sounds so stupid, but it was. It was like I was more thinking about like if you join this religion, please don't embarrass anybody. I was thinking about people the whole time. So I'm hoping, and that conversation did come up about perfection and stuff on Twitter. Sorry, Michael, but about how perfect you have to be before you go into Islam and stuff. And so I hope that you know we've spoken about a range of things today, political and the way that people are treated in society, and obviously about Islam and converting. So I hope that people have taken something from that and have realised that it's not you know you don't have to be like pious and you don't have to be a shape straight away you can gradually come to it which i think is going to be really helpful um last thing where can we get a copy of your book where can people get it uh if you if you go on to claritas books they're based in in swansea c-l-a-r-i-t-a-s claritas books they've got their website you can get the book there okay then brilliant is there any plans to put it anywhere else, like on the Amazon store? Uh, it will be, yeah. The, it will be spread around. Um, but at the moment, it's just on, on the on the little website there. So. Well, I'll definitely be ordering a couple of copies because as whenever we have anyone with a book on, we do a competition on our Patreon. So you have to look over there on how to win a copy of the book. Uh, guys, you've both been really, really helpful. And I thought it was a really good conversation. I was going to bring the book, but we just kept talking about other things. <laughs> I really. Is I, I think the whole to... the whole conversation is important. It's not just about flogging my book, to be honest. No, with no, you. no, 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 not that at all. Well, that's, but I, that's yeah. a one it's really interesting. Thing. It is an interesting story. It really is. Yeah. And um, yeah. is there anything else that you guys wanted to add? Yeah, just one final thing for me. Uh, I mean, you know, on the issue, I think you, which came up in answer to some of the questions you said people ask about being perfect. Yeah. Uh, I think with any religion, whether it is Islam or Christianity, people have to think of it as a hospital. You don't go to a hospital uh, because you are well, you know, you're healthy. You go because you, you know, you need a space to, to heal or, you know, you're looking for, 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 you know, for something that might heal your, your body or your, you know. So I think Islam is like that, and I'm sure other religious traditions are like that. Spiritual movements also are like that, that you don't go there because you're perfect. You go there because you are looking for something uh, for yourself, and um, and in the process, you know, you you you'll find what you're looking for. And it is not about uh, perfect people. We already know that there are no there are no perfect Christians, there are no perfect Jews, there are no perfect Muslims, there are no perfect Hindus. Regardless of what the traditions may teach, the teachings may teach us to be good uh, human beings, but we always fail to live up to the to those teachings and that's why we keep trying and muhammad said one thing that's the prophet of islam and he said all human beings are sinners including you know his most immediate followers who are regarded by muslims as the best of muslims who ever lived he said everybody is a sinner but the best among sinners are those who are who are aware that they are sinners and they will try to do something about it try to improve themselves by repenting and so forth that's all I can say. I, I mean, I'll tell you a little anecdote on perfectionism, which is that, you know, Muslims believe that only God is perfect uh, mm. and 
the, there's a tradition of carpet making, you know, those amazing Persian rugs and Turkish rugs that everybody can buy when on holiday. So the old tradition was, I don't know if people still do it now, but in the old days when they were handcrafted, not made in factories, they'd always deliberately put a floor into the carpet, these intricate carpets, just as a reminder that nothing is perfect except God. So it's just about humility, uh, perfectionism, people thinking they're perfect itself as a spiritual disease that, yes. that, that religious uh, traditions seek to address, yes. you know, and, and, and so there's a false perfectionism that, you know, we have to watch out for as well. And that humility uh, um, toward, you know, humility in, in, in the face of God's, you know, generosity and love, that's what, where we should be focused. Yeah, perfect. One last thing that just came to me. Um, I don't know how you felt, Yahya, when you uh, converted, but I tried to read the Quran, and this just for anybody out there, it's not an easy read. Like, I find the Bible really easy to read, and I know loads from it, and I often base jokes on it, no one appreciates, and I will say stuff, you know, or, you know, I find it really easy to read. I find the Quran not like that. What would you say to someone who's, because that's like the center isn't it so yeah. what? I, I would say start with the life of the prophet and 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 to work your way start then read the short chapters um at the end of the quran um to start with if, if you want to but i think without the context of the prophet's life you won't understand why the quran is the way it is and that it was revealed gradually over 23 years but it's not in chronological order and mm. um, the way it was ordered was by basically by length of the chapter yeah. each chapter so the longest chapters are at the beginning and the shortest chapters are at the end but chron chronologically wise that doesn't match up and we have so to mention wait the beginning and wait the end because we start the other way i think oh, i see well well i mean obviously if it's a translation you'll be going to the end of the book uh, of an english you know the sort of final the final sort of um, sort of twenty or thirty chapters, uh, uh, you'll be looking at those, the short ones that were revealed first in Mecca, uh, rather than reading the, the longer ones at the beginning. And the thing is, it's it's not an easy. It's a very concentrated text. You you it needs to be read with a commentary. But again, I wouldn't read the. I recommend anybody just read the Quran from front from from beginning to end. It just won't make any sense. I would say start with the life of the Prophet and then and then read. You know, maybe a short introductory book on the Quran or something like that, in order to just get a sort of handle on things. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, I think you need to approach the Quran uh, gradually. You know, it's it's something where you spend your lifetime reading the Quran and trying to understand the meanings of its verses and so on. So mm -hmm. it's something that you kind of how can I put it? You you, you go into it gradually. Um, and and also you, to add to add to uh, on what uh, Yahya said. Uh, if anyone, I think the experience that you've described is not just for new Muslims, even those Muslims who have been in the faith for, you know, they, they have the same encounter, rather experience when encountering the Quran, it's not an easy read. And among the earliest followers of Muhammad, these were the people who actually transmitted the Quran to us. They say exactly the same thing, what you said, oh, wow. that, is, that he, they had exactly the same experience. Remember, these were also converts to Islam. All of these early, um, apart from those who were born, the, the earliest uh, community, rather the earliest followers, they were all converts. So Islam was transmitted to us by converts. 
So it wasn't transmitted out by bonds, you know, it was really transmitted out by con you know. So they had similar experience. Even those who were born into the faith, they had similar experiences. So people uh, have to read it. Um, the way described by Yahya, I think is the best way, because when you read the biography of the prophet, if you are lucky to get a good biography in English, that provides you with the context. And then not rush to read, you know, chapter by chapter of the Quran or verse by verse, but also to look at some easy English commentaries on it, which, and starting with the short surahs, or rather the, the short chapters, which are on the, you know, the beginning, depending on how you're looking at it. So of the Quran, I think the way described by Yahya is the best way, but also to know that uh, whatever you're experiencing is being experienced by over a billion of Muslims across the world. They have this same, right. exactly the same experience yeah. when they read the Quran, including those who have memorized it. They have exactly the same experience. So you, you are not uh, alone in that. Any, as any person reading it, they are not alone in that. But it is something experienced by every other Muslim. If any Muslim was to tell you that they find it easy, I think you can ask any Muslim, do you find the Quran easy? They'll tell you it's difficult. If anyone was to tell you that they find it easy, they're lying to you. Yeah. Uh, even, th even those who teach it, those who've memorized it, those who have written mm -hmm. commentaries on it, they'll tell you it's not easy. We are doing our best to clarify it. That's why there's so many different commentaries on the same right. text. You know, people are trying their best to explain it, you know, to understand it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's comforting then. <laughs> <laughs> You're not alone. <laughs> I was just like expecting like the Good Samaritan and then the prodigal son and stuff like that. And I was like, this is so hard. Is there any, quickly, last thing, honestly, uh, any book that you recommend or any particular version of the the life of the prophet that you would recommend to anyone that was just starting out what they would read is there or did it depend on what, you what what do you think michael michael um I, I think this is a this is a good question but also a difficult question for maybe someone like me who's always read uh, arabic sources right so um, uh, but uh, i think you probably would be i think uh, okay let's say we yahya could send you um maybe some sources to include yeah in a list maybe there's no there's, there's no like canonical um like uh, life of the prophet for modern audience that that is 100 you know, every muslim would accept but i'll send you one that's generally held in high regard um maybe the english is a little old-fashioned but it's beautifully written so i'll send you that and the martin links and um uh, uh I, I you know i have problems with the rest but that that's the one i think is generally speaking more balanced so yeah i'll yeah. put that in the links and in the comments underneath as well so yeah guys it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation thank you so much thank I you think, i hope that it's helped uh other, other people watching as well because it is a really popular topic whenever i speak about it online people were like oh and they want to ask questions too so i kind of tried to get in everything that um people have asked or we've discussed and mm. I think we've managed to do quite a lot of it so thank you uh, very very much thank you for having thank us you. it's been an yeah. honor no thank problem you. and I will get the book thank All you right. cheers take bye. care now bye, bye.